You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Here on Faith for Normal People, we're changing things up. And every once in a while, we're going to have a co-host with me or Pete. And believe me, as someone who hates change to the point that I still have the same alarm clock since 1996, I'm scared. But we're in good hands as I'm joined today by the amazing Jennifer Garcia Bashaw. Jennifer is one of our nerds in residence at the Bible for Normal People. But Jennifer, why don't you introduce yourself real quick? Sure. I am a professor at Campbell University. I teach New Testament and Christian ministry. I am a friend of the podcast. I do whatever they want me to do because I support uh, what they're doing in the world. And I live in North Carolina. Yes. So it's going to be a good episode. I'm super excited to have Jennifer as a co-host. She brings a unique perspective, a different set of experiences, and I think that will be really valuable. Speaking of your experiences and your unique perspective, before we get started with today's episode, we have a quick announcement to make. We have a class coming up, our March class called Why God Died, How Atonement Theories Try to Explain Salvation. That has all the juicy morsels we would want in a class. How did God die? That is so provocative. Atonement theories, so nerdy, explaining salvation, so relevant. I mean, it's just, it's all the good stuff. And it just so happens that Jennifer Garcia Bashaw is going to be teaching that. Yes. So it's one night only on March 28th from 8 o'clock p.m. to 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. And so please join me. I am both nervous and excited about it. Oh, yeah, you'll do great. And as always, the class is pay what you can until the class ends, and then you can download it for 25 bucks. But if you sign up and you can't make the live class, no worries. We'll send you a link and you can access it later. So go ahead and sign up now if you want pay what you can. And you can do that at the BibleForNormalPeople.com front slash atonement. Again, that's the BibleForNormalPeople.com front slash atonement. Okay, back to the task at hand. I'm grateful to have you join me, Jennifer, as we talk about parenting in a faith transition with Becca McNeil. And the most important thing to know about Becca is that she's from Texas. Becca is from San Antonio, where she has been a reporter for nine years, and her work has appeared in Christianity Today, San Antonio Current, Public Justice Review, other national uh, and local outlets. And she's recently released her first book, Bringing Up Kids When Church Lets You Down. And that's why we're brought her on to talk about these things today, parenting, faith, from this perspective of a parent and a journalist, and I'm pumped. And don't forget to stay tuned at the end of the interview for Quiet Time, the new segment on Faith for Normal People, where Pete and I reflect on this conversation and talk about some of what it means for us. So let's dive right in. I was really hoping I would get the same results that my parents got as far as good behavior without using the tactics that hurt us. If I get rid of the parts that hurt me, am I also robbing my kids of the parts that benefited me? And can you have one without the other? And so that's really where the conversation got going. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com, promo code normalpeople, that's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com, promo code normalpeople for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com, promo code normalpeople. Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, 
you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Well, welcome, Becca, to Faith for Normal People. We're excited to have you. I am so excited to be here. Okay, we're going to jump right in. What what are the questions you've found parents asking most as you've done this journalistic endeavor here? Sure. So the funny thing is because I'm not a parenting expert, but I am a journalist, I'm usually the one asking the questions. <laughs> but very quickly, in this case, it did turn around to I would ask a question and they would say, I don't know, do you have it figured out? Because I don't. <laughs> and we would start to commiserate more than anything. And that's why the book is such a blend of memoir and journalism. Really what was happening was that I'm an education reporter primarily, and I was talking to people about school and decisions you know parents can make around different curriculum and activities and stuff. And over and over, it kept coming up, well, we used to be involved in a church, but you know something went awry, something went wrong, and we left, and now I don't really know how to give my kid that moral foundation. Or I use, I grew up getting that from religion, but I don't want my kid to have some of the baggage I have from my, my really strict religion. And so now I don't really know where to go. And so what was happening is that a bunch of people my age, I'm in my late 30s, people my age had deconstructed or shifted faith or in some way changed from the way they grew up in their 20s and early 30s and then had kids And suddenly we were realizing that part of growing up in a really strict certainty-based faith is that there's strong opinions about how you raise children and what discipline looks like. And how do you make sure that, you know, I mean, purity culture came up a lot. I don't want them to do a true love weights pledge. I don't want them to feel shame, but I also don't want them to start experimenting at age 12 either, you know, um, in dangerous ways or risky ways. And so there was a lot of these conversations of, if I get rid of the parts that hurt me, am I also robbing my kids of the parts that benefited me? And can you have one without the other? And so that's really where the conversation got going. That's a fantastic question. And I'm going to maybe we'll hold off on that for just a minute. And maybe we can just, we're going to back into this because I think I'd like to hear, I think it'd be good for people to hear kind of how have you, have you evaluated this for yourself? Because I think parenting can be a very sensitive topic. And it it triggers (laughs) a lot of insecurities and a lot of things for people. So maybe just starting with what what are some of the successes and maybe misses in your own experience with your kids around this topic? Sure. Well, first, I want to confirm what you just said about parenting being sensitive. I occasionally, as just like a social experiment, will say something like, well, I don't feel like I'm a great mom. And there's a, a huge asterisk next to that. Like, I'm not good at remembering where my kids stuff is. I'm not good at keeping schedules. Like the the tasks of motherhood are difficult for me. And when it comes to the talk I heard growing up about what good and bad parenting looked like, a lot of it had to do with, are there kids in church? Are there kids getting in trouble? Are there kids obedient, well-behaved? Do they talk back? That mom, if she didn't want to raise her kids, AKA she has a job, Why'd she even have them? And so a lot of the parent judgment that I'd heard growing up wasn't directed at me, but I suddenly found myself in the category of people who had been judged. And so when I talk about my parenting successes and failures, on one hand, yes, I'll give a great example. We're at my parents' house, my very evangelical parents, and I have made this big statement of we're not going to spank, we're going to do gentle parenting, I've got this whole manifesto that I've given them when my kids are little. (laughs) And we're at their house, my kids are six and eight. And my daughter is doing something my son doesn't like. And across the house in front of everybody, I'll use the PG rated word that he said, (laughs) but what the fudge, Moira? (laughs) And only it wasn't fudge, it was the real thing. And 
parents' eyes shut, eyebrows shut up. Everybody turns and looks at me like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to crack down and draw a boundary? Are you going to stick to this mealy-mouthed, gentle parenting you've been talking about? There was just this tense moment. And in that moment, on one hand, you know, using coarse language was a big no-no when I was growing up. It was in the Bible or, you know, let no unwholesome speech come out of your mouth. So that was a big behavioral no-no. Not to mention that the F word is sexual. So that was like even worse. And I found that I I was able to do some self-reflection. Thankfully, my husband was there to handle the, the actual behavioral moment we were having. And I was able to do some self-reflection about the conflict inside of me that said, I was really hoping I would get the same results that my parents got as far as good behavior without using the tactics that hurt us. I had really hoped that my kids would act just like I did, but they wouldn't have an anxiety disorder later in life. And what I realized was that Success and failure can look a bunch of different ways because there have been times when I have failed to have the kind of faith that God has a relationship with my children that does not need my control over them and their behavior. And I have gotten very controlling with them. And there have been successes and failures in that my kids do sometimes do things that would have made my mother go completely bananas had we ever dared. So that's one aspect of it. And I don't know if you want to, there's other ways, like there's times where we didn't, we decided not to tell them about hell. Somehow my son found out about hell and told a boy in his class, he needed to know Jesus or he was going to hell. And I have no idea where that came from. And so we had to go see, go up to the school and deal with my evangelizing son and, They go to a public school where you can't tell people they're going to hell if they don't believe in Jesus. So anyway, there's been all sorts of interesting things. They've picked up theology that, you know, is just kind of in the water. We have a super evangelical family. They have come up with their own fascinating theologies that are great, you know, and I'm all about letting them work that out. And a big question that we use in our house is, well, what do you think? When they ask what happens when we die, we, we want to start with where are you and how are you approaching this? Mm-hmm. I appreciate so much your vulnerability in talking about, you know, what you might call your misses. Um, I always had a lot of anxiety around, you know, being a good parent or am I doing this right? And I was raised in the same kind of environment than you were I'm in a conservative evangelical church and a family um, that valued discipline. And we, the whole James Dobson and all that, all of that. Um, so you mentioned the spanking. I wonder if you can talk a little bit more about discipline and I guess what some people call behavior-based discipline, like what is that and what kind of problems do you think arise from that? Mm-hmm. Well, we opted for a brain science approach to discipline. Uh, the work of Tina Payne Bryson has been huge for me. She uses brain science and how children's brains develop to help us relate to their behaviors in a way that sees this as a function of their biology, not their morality. Mm-hmm. And that was so helpful to me because there was one framework growing up in that Dobson. You know, I'm glad you mentioned Dobson because he has this, the child is sinful. Their rebellion comes from a sinful place. It's the parent's job to, straighten them out. And it's going to be a war. He has a very oppositional framing of the parent-child relationship. And if you look at yourself more as the, the tin, like you're tending or cultivating a child's growing brain, the way that you do their body, then you can take a much more patient and you, you have more options to pick from when you're saying, how am I going to address this? When my son shouted the F word, what was he trying to do? What was his, what was he seeing? What threat was he perceiving? 
He's six. So what are the tools that he has to respond to a situation where he feels that something of value to him is threatened? They're not all the same tools that someone with a fully developed prefrontal lobe has. (laughs) And, you know, big impact words like, does he know what this means? He probably doesn't. Does he know that it's something he saw someone yell at the park when they fell down or something? Maybe. So I think that the beauty of stepping away from this, it's all sin. All behavior is a manifestation of sin. Mm -hmm. And we need to get there to the root of it and, and explain to this child why what they just did is because they are broken and sinful and need to repent. And instead, Tina Payne Bryson and her colleagues talk about training. And I found this very biblical. I found this like train up a child in the way they should go. It means practice. It means sometimes we fail. It means we ask, what is achievable for us right now? I'm dealing with this with my children. Is it realistic to ask you to have no emotional response when I give you a list of unpleasant tasks that need to be done and all you want to do is play? Is it reasonable six-year-old that you'll go, okay, mom, and just get up and do it? Or is it actually more developmentally appropriate for you to resist in some way? Because you don't have a concept of time and delayed reward and all of that to the degree that you will have it eventually. Yeah. Another, when when you're saying the training, uh, train up a child in the way so should go, I think the biblical concept too of wisdom comes to mind. And that's been a big one for you know how I think about parenting is not growing up in a rule-based system, but growing up in a wisdom-based system, which has those elements, like you're saying, of wisdom is developed through experience. And so the, the failure is expected. This is not black and white. This is a way to develop. And it's also situational around there are certain situations where this is appropriate and not. And that's been more of our approach with even something like, you know, using curse words, which I don't really, we don't use that language of curse word because we, we, I don't, my kids, you know, use those quote curse words around me all the time. I don't, it's not a big deal. That's not a standard <laughs> that I'm holding them to at all, but it's situational. Like you understand that your grandparents don't like this language and use it around them. And we have to also understand that we need to maybe be respectful of the environment we're in and the situations we find ourselves in, you know, so maybe when you're around your grandparents, not a good time to use that language. Um, of course, my, my kids are a little older in that way. But so I think there's that I appreciate what you said, too, about the the standard is different, because when we say, are we failing or succeeding? If we're using a framework for parenting that came out of our religious tradition and we don't hold that anymore, sometimes it can be hard to get out of that where we still feel like we're failing, even though we don't even hold to those standards anymore. Oh, my gosh, there's so much there. Okay, I'm going <laughs> to go piece by piece by what you said, because everything that you said spins off into a, probably a different chapter in the book, honestly, because those are the real conversations. So like with swears, for instance, we're not morally opposed to them, my husband and I. We don't, I mean, obviously we giggle when it happens and there's, t- and I have, we have rules about like when it's appropriate and when it's not But we've also talked to them about at six years old, whatever's most accessible in your brain is probably what's going to come flying out in a moment of stress. So if that's what's in your brain, it makes it more likely that you're going to say it at school and get in trouble. It makes it more likely that you're going to slip on the stairs or something at grandma and grandpa's. Well, hopefully not that. That's kind of dramatic. You're going to bump your head at grandma and grandpa's and shout that and You know, I know their mindset enough to where like, I'm not sure they would be able to address the head wound if they were caught up in addressing the words. But that's a great illustration of in our house, we address the wound first. And then once we are deescalated, maybe we'll have a talk about like, hey, just so you know, you use that word in school, I'm going to get a call. You know, some of them not, but some of them I will. And then the other thing that you were talking about when our systems change, but our formation doesn't. That's a great way of saying that. Yeah. Yeah. Though that's in the book, I'm talking about perfectionism. And I try to make the point that it's not just your religion. 
that gave you this perfectionism. It's your whole culture. And I've tried to also say when people say, what if the church, what if you love your church? What if the church hasn't let you down? And I'm like, I promise the church has let you down. The, there has been a cooperation between white American Protestantism, even predating evangelicalism, white American Protestantism and other systems in our country that's making life more competitive, more perfectionistic, more unequal. Like it's all tied together and you can trade out the pieces and parts and you can be as perfectionist of a liberal as you are a conservative. You can be as rigid of a an atheist as you are a Christian. It's how you are made. So switching out the words that you're using doesn't do as much as going in and looking at the fact that you were made to feel that you had to perform in order to stay safe and to belong. And that's not going to go away just because you left your church. You're still going to find yourself needing to perform and belong. And that's a disposition that you can demonstrate to your kids and they can grow up in an environment where they feel that way. Just because the values are different doesn't mean that the relationship isn't still harmed. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you were in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We love the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. I'm so glad you talked about um, performing because I grew up in in a household that held me to a particular standard of performance, but then dealt with me with shame in order to make make sure I stayed in a particular you know performance. And I, I'm always afraid that I'm going to be using that shame unconsciously, you know, with my kids because that's what I was raised on. And I'm wondering if you can help us understand, like, how can we be aware? Uh, as parents, when we're using shame, um, especially if it's something that we've we've sort of 
grown up with? Like, what does that look like shaming mm-hmm. your, your kid in discipline, you know? Yeah. I'll, I'll share one of my early failures was being so harsh with my daughter at age three-ish that she ran out of the house and jumped headfirst into the bushes Aww. and to hide. And I literally was like, oh my gosh, we're, we're reenacting. She was <laughs> in a diaper too. So she must've been even younger, but we're reenacting the garden of Eden. She is naked in the bushes, hiding in shame. Mm-hmm. And to me, that was a huge moment because I thought she literally, she's literally feeling the need to hide. And that's different from taking time away, taking time to, you know, gather herself. She wanted to hide or when my kids wouldn't look at me and brain science, social development, a real capacity for shame felt by the child doesn't really develop until I think they're like nine or 10. So you'll start to see it a lot more in like fourth grade, but I could see whatever the precursor is alienation and embarrassment, maybe, and a rift in the relationship. So I would say, um, and, and there are social theorists and psychologists, and there are other ways to think about shame. Um, people I've interviewed and talked to and my own therapist actually is like, well, there's actually a social use for shame, which is it's the relational aspect of harm being done or transgression. So guilt is what you feel inside where I did something wrong. Shame is how the community or the person in this relationship sees me because of it, how I see myself. It's the perception piece. And then embarrassment is something else, which would be the, oh, I feel, I feel that this thing I did doesn't measure up to me. Shame is more I don't measure up. And so there are pro-social reasons for shame that actually cause more groups of people to change their behaviors. Brian Stevenson with the Equal Justice Initiative is pretty adamant that shame is important when we look at systemic racism, that we don't feel we want to just move on past stuff and that we haven't embraced it enough, embraced the shame of it enough to say, what can we do to change? We're, we're just like waiting for people to get over it. And so that's, I don't want to say that shame is never, should never be part of any conversation. But what you're talking about, and what I experienced, <laughs> is that shame that how I view myself, how the other person in the relationship views me, when my behavior, or my performance changed my fundamental relationship, my fundamental worth, my fundamental, how God viewed me, how my parents viewed me, how my pastor viewed me and my position in the community and whether like shaming and shunning are kind of related, but there can be an emotional shame and to where it's communicated to me that this behavior is a sign of an inward corruption. You are a bad person and that's why you did a bad thing. Yeah. Mm. It's heavy and it sticks with you. And I think a lot of us who grew up with a really sin-based framework in theology and honestly, like our parents viewing us as primarily as sinners who they needed to civilize or something, it, it hangs in there. It lasts with you. You have a hard time feeling worthy of love you have a hard time feeling like your mistakes can be overcome. You fear disproportionate responses from employers, from spouses. It's it's a real journey. Well, maybe that's a great segue because I, I want to make sure we have time to talk about something we, we mentioned at the very beginning. And that is, how can we talk with our kids or work with their kids about faith? And is there a way to minimize the harm and keep the beneficial? Um, you know, what can we... Can we talk about faith with kids that don't lead to resentment or hurt or trauma later? And and I want to package it in in a way that acknowledges some of my experience, and that's I've heard people talk about that their their fear that their own uncertainty with faith or church will be experienced as instability by their kids, and so they they feel like they're 
pushed into this choice of, well, maybe I'll raise my kids in the church or in kind of more of a fundamentalist understanding of religion when they're young, because that turned out okay for me. But then, you know, we'll just have a better way to like undo it later. And it it just never seemed to make a lot of sense to me as a way to approach it. But, you know, what, what are ways that you've seen that folks can navigate this better? Sure. So I will say one adult child, like she's in college. I had interviewed a young woman who's very deep and thoughtful. And so is her father. And her father is one of the original deconstruct, like he was deconstructing before it was cool. And they did a lot of like church hopping. He's curious about churches, but he's never found one where he settled in. And he didn't give her children do want answers. They like black and white maturity and nuance is something you mature into abstract thinking, both and statements rather than either or statements. That's hard for little brains. (laughs) And he never gave her the answers that she wanted. He just didn't feel like it was morally sound to give her certainty that he didn't have. And she was frustrated. It was hard for her. Her personal faith as an adult is deep and rich and curious. She wants to know more. She she calls herself a Christian. She wouldn't call herself an evangelical. I recount in the book that when I was interviewing her about her faith, she said something like, my time with the Lord. And both her father and I kind of startled almost because that's just not language that you hear often from people who didn't grow up in a evangelical church. And so I think what people have to understand, and honestly, a really wonderful therapist, who's not my therapist, but a therapist said to me, parenting is not judged in these snapshot moments. I think movies like Inside Out made us all paranoid that the moment we yell at them or something is is going to make the core memory or the, the bad answer that we gave is going to like form some kind of core part of their personality. And she just wanted to say that parenting is a process and whatever answer you give when you nuance it later and when you have the second and third conversation about it or when you mess up and then you go apologize, all of that is formative, but it's, it's over the long haul. It's not, and we want, we have a very, I need to give you all of this now. This comes up a lot when we talk about sex. Um, all of the experts that I talked to about talking to kids about sex. So you don't sit them down and have not, I mean, you can, but it's actually even more helpful if you will just have little conversations over time that are in keeping with what the questions that they're asking. You're not giving them more than they're ready for. You're not having the talk. You're having many talks. Exactly. You're normalizing the talks. And I think faith is the same way. When you are sharing faith with them, it's kind of the Montessori method of where are they curious? What are the questions that they're asking now? When we, when our kids in a moment of distress after losing a grandparent asked what happens when you die, they needed to know, am I safe? Will I see him again? How bad is this loss? They were two and four. We told them you go to heaven. We don't, nobody knows exactly how this all works. We weren't going to say, well, if you're, certainly weren't going to say <laughs> if your faith is in Christ, then you go to heaven. If not, you get, we didn't go into any theological thing. We answered the question that they were asking the question behind the question, which is how scary is this? How deep is my loss right now? Is there hope? And the, and another great thing, Meredith Miller such a great resource for parents who are struggling with this because her thing is it's about your relationship with your kids and them feeling we are in many ways the the testing ground and the growth ground for their spirituality. There's research that backs up this idea that children's first concept of what God is like is their parents and that their innate spirituality develops first within them and then in their relationship with us. Like we're the first thing outside themselves, which means we're the first like stepping stone to the transcend to understanding a transcendent being. It's and that's that's not even like Christian research. That's just people understanding 
why people pray? Why do people have spiritual lives? And they are finding that it is, it's ingrained. It's, it, we're born with it. And so having those conversations in your house, I think take comfort and know that they're questions your child is wired to ask. And you don't have to sit down and give them the Westminster Confession of Faith and memorize that together, or you don't even have to memorize Bible verses. It's about letting them explore their big questions in a safe place that says there's no answer you could come to that's going to take you outside of my love. Is it fair to say, too, on the flip side, you know, you mentioned memorizing the Westminster Confession. I think a lot like that's more of maybe the tradition I would have grown up with is is this is faith formation and it's very intentional and very structured. But I, I think maybe it's fair to say on the other side, being careful not to use your kids as your therapist for when you're going through like a deconstruction or a faith transition and feeling that you're, you know, projecting your own emotion around it or your own. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I think there's a, there's something too on the other side of that. Like what you're saying is create a space regardless, create a space where they can explore that sometimes it's not about you and needing to kind of, you know, I, I just feel like you can excuse using your kids as your therapist as a, as parenting when really it's just me venting about something. And that may not be a good approach either. Uh, for sure. I think that any child development expert would tell you that you as the parent need to have other places that you express your panic right? <laughs> about everything, not just faith. <laughs> um, our kids need us to sometimes be a little less scared than we are because again, we're their stepping stone to reality and, and trans and bigger truth. And they're interpreting a lot of that through us. When your kid is raging, they need you to help them regulate. When your kid is questioning, they need you to be a good sounding board for their ideas without becoming destabilized yourself. And so I would say I do not go to my kids with my questions about faith. I might, when they're older, I might say, you know, when they're like teenagers, I could see myself saying, I don't know, I've really been thinking about this thing that I always believed and I'm starting to wonder about it. But certainly in the preteen, like childhood, preteen years, my journey is really not their burden. I would like to change gears really quickly, though you've already mentioned it, Becca, about sex and talking about sex with your kids. I, you know, did true love weights and had purity culture uh, shoved down my throat my whole Mm -hmm. life. And so when it came time to talk to my kids about sex, I was very worried about that coming out. So I chickened out and my husband has done most of the talking. I, I do also, you know, model respect for people and respect for yourself. I do that, but I didn't have like the talk. And I wonder if you have any advice for people who um, want to teach their kids about sexuality in a healthy body positive way, but they just really haven't received that themselves. Like, what would you tell them? That's the million dollar question. And honestly, among journalists who report on religion post- true love weights era because the purity culture purity culture has been deemed pretty hard for all of its transgressions. I mean, the testimonies are myriad about the ways that people were harmed and the damage done and the perfectly happily married people who have trouble having sex because of what they, the messages they received. All of that has, I think led the church to kind of, and I say the church with a capital C like, I know there are specific churches who still do a very intense purity culture. There's a lot of them, but I think, I think there is a surprisingly broad cross section of Christians who are trying to figure out something better. And the first question I've talked to other journalists, other journalists who report on faith communities and they keep the, the million dollar gold mine question that we all are asking is, Where's the book? Like, where's the I kiss dating goodbye for 
the post-purity culture movement? Where's our consent-based how-to? And it's not there. It, I mean, there's people, there's people doing good teaching. There's people doing good work. Linda K. Klein wrote the book Pure about people coming out of purity culture and since then has developed, you know, has her own children, has developed really great ways to talk about it. I interviewed her in my book. There's lots of individuals. There hasn't been this mass culture resource. And that's been pretty frustrating, I think, for a lot of people. I do default to how medical professionals recommend talking about the basics, being clear medically, emphasizing autonomy, emphasizing consent, emphasizing respect. Those are all basic cultural values. And so it's about talking to them about these are the facts. This is the way your body was made. And this is how you need to handle that in society. But then there is a moral component. And the first thing, and this is where my husband and I are like, we are, we're, it's coming, you know, in the next five years, probably the, to have to have the, the moral aspect of the talk, which is what are the contexts in which sexual activity is appropriate and what kinds of sexual activity. So I think everybody has to decide within their own family, what is our stance on all of those things. What is our stance on LGBTQ identity, on sex outside of marriage, on kissing outside of marriage, on who gets to be alone, on the the right age for dating, the purpose of a dating. Those are all real things that it's okay to come to an opinion on and then share that opinion with your child. But then the same thing applies to all other theology, doctrine, training, and teaching, are you giving it to them in a way that says, like we were told, Jennifer, if you blow this, you're done for. (laughs) Yeah, you're worthless in the shame and it all comes down. And, And really making this a, this isn't just my values, this is absolute values, you must share these in order to be accepted in our community. You know, there was a lot of weight placed on that. And I think, so I think deciding what your family values are, but then also deciding what are the relational stakes that we're willing to attach to this? And was it the expectations or was it the relational consequences that did the most damage in purity culture? And I'm going to say the relational consequences did as much damage as knowing that your parents didn't want you to have sex until you got married. Right. There's, uh, I mean, I feel like even culturally, to your point earlier, I feel like even outside of the true love weights or, you know, focus on the family teachings about don't have sex outside of marriage. I feel like in general, that was kind of a cultural norm in some sort, you know, obviously that's an overgeneralization, but I feel like even in those places, the damaging part was just the anxiety producing results or impact that we were told that we would have if we messed up where other families outside that tradition, it's like, yeah, don't do it. Oh, well I did it. Okay. Well, you know, like here's some of the consequences, but you know, just be Be you know cautious. Um, (laughs) instead, yeah, exactly. Instead of like, no, God is now mad at you. And I, you, this is a sin that you can't actually really wash away because once it happens, it's done and you're just, you know, you're kind of broken forever. Like, oh my, like it just escalates the the language so much. So I appreciate what you're saying. Yeah, I think that's everything. And again, what forms you is relationships and keeping those healthy requires you to be more flexible on your values, your dogma, your systems, all of that. It's really, you know, the whole conceit of the book is, if we would stop letting other agendas tell us how to relate to our kids and let loving our kids dictate how we relate to our kids, more would change than we would, than one would think. (laughs) Right. So as we kind of wrap up our time here, I think, you know, I often like to end by asking the question, what's one step that someone can take if they, they feel like they've been kind of paralyzed in this, not knowing what to do. Okay. I'm, I'm still uncertain about my own faith journey. I don't know where it's going. 
I know what I kind of don't want for my kids. I'm not sure what I do want. If folks are in that position, what might be one step that you could recommend that they take? Honestly, I would say just keep tending that, like keep doing that work and listen well to your children. Like take the pressure off to be looking for the opportunity to deliver something to your kids and just listen for their actual questions and their actual curiosity, because that is going to be probably a more gentle entry to the conversation than anything you would dream up in your anxious state. Um, so keep doing like it's lifelong work, reparenting ourselves, changing those internal contours of our souls and our anxieties and whatnot. Keep doing it. But rather than, you know how when you have a conversation and you can tell the person is just trying to like think of the rebuttal to what you're going to say while you're talking versus when they fully listen and then reply. Yeah. That's how faith conversations can be with our kids instead of constantly looking for our golden opportunity to jump in and do some kind of prerequisite training or formation. If we are on this healing journey ourselves and we are just really intent on knowing our kids and listening to them, the moments I think come more organically and more gently. And we find that really and truly because our family culture is different, their questions are also probably going to fit within our family culture and be answerable by the kind of world that we've given them. And so that's not really a first step other than keep doing what you're doing and listen to your kids. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a great, I think it's a great way to end because I, I do think sometimes there's the, again, that message of not enough, that perfectionism of how do I do it right? And so to have it be like, well, maybe the next step is, you know, really just focus on your kid and, and listen to them and, and be gentle with them and be gentle with yourself as you're trying to figure it out and, and really work on those skills of deep listening which again is something that I feel like in evangelical culture is almost like listening was a means to an end. I listen so that then I get a turn to evangelize you. Exactly. And so I think it could be a really great first step for people. So I really um, appreciate that. So thank you so much, Becca, for coming on and talking to us um, about, again, such a sensitive topic. I can feel myself getting all like tense and sensitive talking about <laughs> it. So I think it's maybe something we should normalize more and so that we can have more resources and feel more supported in this. So thanks for coming on and, and doing that work with us. Thanks for making space for this conversation. I appreciate it. And now for Quiet Time with Pete and Jared. Okay, goody, we get to talk about parenting. I get nervous anytime we talk about parenting because I think it is, it's a sensitive topic. And, and, it's, and what do we know? And I know that's the thing is like, <laughs> well, we don't, there's not like a standard. I mean, I guess there's like parenting experts, but nothing highlights the difference between an expert and like a wise practitioner than a parent, because mm -hmm. you could be an expert in parenting, but that's so different than actually having to raise human beings. Exactly. Right. So, and as a grandparent now, you know, I, I've become something of an expert in the sense of like, dear God, did I actually do that? <laughs> My poor kids. Yeah. Why do they not hate me? You know, <laughs> thanks. So, <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and again, with this, I mean, that too, like, you know, why do my kids not hate me? I, I think Maybe there my is, kids do. Side issue, I think anyway. that's actually what I wanted to talk to you about. <laughs> Your kids are here in the <laughs> studio. This is an oh, intervention. Hi Pete. guys. Yeah. It's an intervention. <laughs> no, it's, I think there is this sense, something we didn't talk about a lot is working through if you quote, did it wrong when your kids were young and how to work through that kind of the guilt of like, oh, geez, like, did I set my kids up for failure or is this going to be something they're going to have to overcome later in life to bring them up in a tradition that I no longer believe in? Mm -hmm. And I think that's an important question to like figure out. I don't know. Did you, I feel like I've heard you wrestle with that some. Yeah. I mean, more after the fact, cause uh, that's what I mean. Like yeah. later. Yeah. Cause I mean, going, you know, it's, it's easy for, uh, I think parents to be sort of an autopilot to reproduce values. They're not even sure that they have or why they have them or just sort of transmitting an inherited faith, which uh, we didn't do because I mean, at least my parents didn't really, they were German. So I, I didn't grow up with like strict religious rules or anything like that, but, but still, you know, it's, it's, um, 
you you wind up raising kids. I you know, I don't know how we get away with it, to be honest with you. You know, you're twenty something, you haven't even figured out your own crap yet, and you've got these little things in your life that you just wind up transferring all your crap on them. Not that you did that, but but the thing is that if you're not aware, that's what I'm saying. Right, right. You can do things like punish children for certain behaviors when in fact maybe that's not what you should be doing right? right or or using shame you know to raise your children all of which are highly toxic and you know I could never write a book about parenting but like you know I've got glimpses of my life it's like why did I do that oh yeah my mom and dad sort of did that too and then but you're not even you shouldn't have kids in your 20s that's what I'm trying to say <laughs> that's the mid 50s <laughs> that's when you can start having kids yeah then everything's going to be fine okay that's yeah. great. Okay. Thanks, everybody. That's my for, parenting advice. Yeah. Don't do it. Don't um, do it unless you really know yourself, quite frankly. Yeah. I, I'm kind of coming at it from the opposite side, which now reflecting, my kids are a little older now. What are their ages again? What's the range? Uh, 15 to 8. And I think my some of my regrets come from, at least related to faith, is not having a little bit more of a routine and rhythm. I think I kind of went the other way of, mm -hmm. I think I did a good job of avoiding toxic sort of church culture mm -hmm. and avoiding sort of toxic religion. But I think I could have done a little bit of a better job of infusing the idea of Christianity and faith with more positivity and mm -hmm. the constructive pieces of it okay. in a way that, you know, I, my kids go to church every Sunday. Well, most Sundays when I go, but they, they don't love it. They don't really understand it. Mm -hmm. They don't understand why they're there. And it's not that they don't hate it. I don't have to like drag them there, but they're kind of like ambivalent, I mm -hmm. guess. And so I think I look back and be like, I could have done a little better job. I think of, I was so worried to avoid the bad that I wasn't really focusing on that. You the didn't good. give them a tradition. Is yeah. that a way of putting it? Yeah, that's yeah. a good way of saying right. it. Yeah. Right. Not giving them a tradition, something that they feel a part of right. and that that brings value to them. Yeah. And, you know, I guess maybe you were, responding or reacting to your own upbringing, right? So, you know, that's just the way it is. Right, yeah, right. reacting yeah. to it. But just, I think I overreacted to it. Mm -hmm. I, I overcorrected right. in some ways. And right. I wasn't antagonistic. And also, just to be aware for that of like, you know, my spouse at the time and I were not on the same page about it. And so that right. it also, that plays into how it gets talked about where I don't want to, it's hard to There's like extra dynamic. You've got to be. Yeah. Of like who's participating right. in what and how and when. And it's, it's sort of like, not that it, nothing was ever combative, mm -hmm. but it was always a multiplicity of perspectives. So if mm -hmm. I were to talk about the positivity, you know, the positive parts about being part of a community and a church and things like that, then you have someone else who's talking about like, but yeah, it's toxic and it can also be really bad and right. bring that right. into, and it, in some ways that's good because my kids got to kind of hear both sides and, you know, be able to make their own decisions as they get older. But I think there is something to inheriting a tradition in the rhythms and habits of that. That could be of value. And, you know, it just takes a lot of energy to uh, create a tradition for kids that you yourself didn't have. But you want to do it differently, but how do you do it differently? And I think it's easier just to say, well, we're just not going to do all other stuff, you know. And, right. and I know plenty of young people who are in, you know, in their 20s or 30s or whatever, who, who are, that's exactly where they are. I don't know what to do. I know what I'm not doing. Right. Yeah, right. we can be very clear about what we're not doing. Right. And it's like, it's really hard. I mean, how many young people... Uh, just don't want to go to church and with kids. And it's mm -hmm. like, I, I understand why, you know, but what can you do? I'm asking rhetorically here. You know, what can you do to maybe establish a non-toxic tradition for them? Right. I just think that's, that's why we need people, you know, like Becca and others to write books and to talk about these things because I, I don't know, you know, we've gotten this question a lot, haven't we? Mm -hmm. We get yeah. it like, can you talk about parenting? It's like, we've talked about parenting. We, we've we exhausted our knowledge, on but we have other people on who have really, who are in the midst of it, who are thinking through it. And it's, I think it's extremely valuable to think in terms of the continued development and transformation of the faith itself by looking forward and saying, what does it mean to prepare kids for a life of faith in the world that we're living in and moving forward and not just looking backward, either in reactive mode or in simple 
reproduce mode of the past. And either ways are probably not that helpful. Well, and I think maybe too, one thing that's been helpful to me is to think about, it, it sounds counterintuitive, but I think sometimes the best advice I've been given is kind of the advice of put your own mask on first. Right. Take care of your own spiritual journey and your mm-hmm. own spiritual walk and do that work. And then just involve your kids in that. It, it, because sometimes I think we can get like, well, I'm a lost cause. I don't know where I stand, but I want to give my kids mm-hmm. something. And I just feel like that. Uh, that or you think I, I'm just right. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, that's the other side. Yeah. Of it too, yeah. Right? yeah. But it, which is, I mean, yeah, that's, I'm not talking to that group because mm-hmm. I don't think our listeners are really probably not there. Dogmatically. Right. I'm right. Yeah. I think it's more kind of like that paralyzed of, I don't know what to do. And then sometimes it's like, well, then we'll just go to more traditional church, even though I don't believe in it because right. at least they're getting something. Mm-hmm. I just think that focus on your kids, because it's like, I'm a lost cause. I might as well focus on my kids. I just think there's something in that arithmetic that doesn't always add up. It's not Um, very authentic. Yeah, where it can be like, well, if I do my own spiritual work, then it can feel, yeah, like Mm -hmm. authentic and inviting. That's what I meant when I said, like, I'm right kind of thing. It's not so much that. It's that you're not aware of your own need to continually do the spiritual work. and. Yeah. That's a, ver- I mean, again, I know yeah. young people like this. That is a very, very valuable thing, in my opinion, to pass on to children. Not our tribe has the answers, and no matter how big the tribe is. you know. And again, see, this is always comes up, though, Jared. Are there answers we should be giving kids, right? I mean, the whole thing, I mean, Richard Rohr talks about the need for concreteness at a young age. So you're teaching them some tradition, and then you develop that as you grow older. I mean... Or, or maybe maybe we're just bypassing all that and letting kids discover this stuff when they get older. I don't know. Yeah, I kind of I think there is debate on that, and I again I don't hold this strongly, but I actually don't think that kids need structure on a conceptual level. I don't think they need conceptual structure. I think we are equivocating on the stability our kids need. Like my kids, mm-hmm. I, I found my kids needed the stability of me emotionally showing up for them, physically showing up for them, giving them routine and structure and appropriate accountability and boundaries. Uh-huh. Like that's the kind of structure I think my kids need. I don't feel like it's important to throw in their concrete ideas about God. And if I question that, or if I'm questioning it in front of them, Mm -hmm. that it's somehow going to provide this existential instability to them. Right. Maybe I'm wrong on that, but I don't, that's how I've kind of Yeah, I mean, others would agree. I mean, I remember, you know, Cindy Wong Grant being on and she said something very similar. She disagrees with Roar. You know, like, I'm not sure if that's really needed for kids. It beats me. I don't have a strong opinion (laughs) on it because I I know that, you know, my granddaughter asks a lot of questions about God and it's not because they go to church. She's just asking questions. So, and the way my daughter's handling that is just allowing her to ask the questions and then her giving, well, here's how I see it, the, the yep. kind of thing. And, but all these questions about like, well, where is God? I mean, what does that even mean? Like, and that's why she tries to focus on Jesus a little bit because that's more concrete, right? But mm-hmm. it's not concrete in the sense like, here are all the answers and this is what you don't deviate from. Mm-hmm. You know. Well, and I think that also those questions can also, again, coming back to, I think it's about us doing our work. It can actually prompt us to say, well, what has the history of the church had to say about this? Like, what what are the traditions for how we can answer where is God? What is God? Like, there's philosophy, there's psychology, there's right. church tradition, there's all kinds of, there's a there's just a never-ending well of information mm-hmm. that we can go to that generates conversation yeah. and relationship and communication. Which can be overwhelming for parents, too. Right. Um, if the goal is to get exactly. to the answer. Right. But if it's more like... Exploratory. A curiosity and exploratory, it's it's a little bit different, I think. You yeah. know? And I think you know, others have said, too, maybe we could just stop with this, but, you know, I mean, not to trigger people, when you take hell off the table... Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you don't think that God has... Yeah, it changes the game. It, it does change the game in terms of... Because you're not raising your kids to be in line to avoid eternal conscious torment, right? The further I'll get away from that, the weirder that sounds. Yeah, I, right. I know, mm-hmm. and, and I understand why people hold to that, but I don't. Mm-hmm. It just It makes no biblical or philosophical or theological sense to me. It just comment to me. But uh, but the, my point is that not to get into that whole issue, but it's about how once that fear is taken off the table, that's part of the parents' work perhaps that you're talking about. Once right. that fear is off the table, you can 
cherish your children and raising them with ha- having a mindset of at least engaging what we might call ultimate reality, the existence of God, whatever we uh, whatever you want to call it, but and, and to do that not from a position of fear right. or trepidation, but a position of the world's a place where we get to think about things like this and join the club, folks. This is the way it is. Right. You know? And nurture that from a young age. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Did we solve anything? No. It is a quiet time. It's quiet time. It's it's quiet a time. it's a place of contemplation. It's not quiet. a place of answers. I know. That's right. All right, folks. See ya. See you next time. Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com forward slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. Thanks for listening to Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, The Bible for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Stephanie Spate, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schaub.